It's wonderful to see you today. Um, a couple notices. If you notice a flicker over here, it's uh, nothing's wrong. It's just the Shekinah glory of God present in the room. Okay, some of you are older and remember that phrase, and some of you are not. That's okay. Uh, we're trying to get it fixed bit by bit. Um, I've got a couple of notices to give you ahead of time, uh, and uh, some, just some personal updates I wanted to share with you as well. The first is that uh, in two weeks' time, on July the 23rd, we are going to have a service of baptism in our church. We've got about 10 people who are queued up to take the plunge, which is wonderful. And um, rather than parse them out, or rather than um, only have us partially, can I come down? I'm too, I'm ringing in the room, please. Rather than have us, we're going to have one church service that day and bring everybody together. So July 23rd, a 10 a.m. service, one kind of big long-ish service. If you've got to run, that's fine. We can make do. But I'd love, us to have, I'd love for us to have a really full room and a really celebratory time where we can uh, take part in what God has done in these people's lives. Uh, so just so you mark your calendars, that's two weeks from now. There'll be more notices and other things about that. Uh, but I'm very excited that we get to share this uh, celebration of baptism together. It's a big deal, and it's a wonderful thing for us to do. Uh, so I wanted to share a couple, just some personal updates. I don't talk about myself very often. I try not to. I don't think I'm that interesting. Uh, but uh, if you notice, I was gone a few weeks back, and that's because I went to Scotland. Um, and I took, um, I had done my PhD in 2021, but because of COVID, never got to graduate. So here's me uh, on the streets in the processional in my blue robes and my, oh, thank you. It's good. Um, Uh, and this is the university chapel called St. Salvators, which is, you know, it feels like you're saying it the wrong way every time, but that's how they say it. Uh, and I took a selfie inside, because why not? Uh, and that was lovely. It's an 11th century, uh, parts of it are built in the 11th century, so quite an interesting old space. Um, and I, I just want to tell you a little bit about what that means for us and why we did this. So at the end of 2016, uh, my wife and I have been in about eight and a half years of full-time pastoral ministry. I was five years at a Vietnamese church. I preached every Sunday. Um, I was three and a half years at a Chinese church in Burnaby, and that was a joy to be with them. But I'd done this without any, uh, any real break for all that time. And so when we, at the end of 2016, we left to move to Scotland uh, to begin this PhD journey. And we're excited to have a kind of like, finally, let's, let's have a change of pace. Let's have a bit of a break. And we landed, and after a couple months, we realized that there were some like institutional tickers that kicked right away, and there were urgencies that just drove us to move really fast uh, with the degree. Don't worry about it. I won't bore you with the technicalities. All that to say, it wasn't restful. It was deeply exhausting to arrive. And so from 2017 um, on, we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to prioritize the work of the degree first, and then we'll enjoy our time in Scotland later, right? Well, many of you know what happened in 2020. Um, that kind of soured those plans, made that impossible. And so actually, I finished the entire degree in the back corner of our flat in St. Andrews. Um, so I'd close the door, and I'd light incense, and I'd hole up, and I'd shoo the family away, which wasn't all that much fun, uh, and spent that time. And then it was a very kind of digital ephemeral. Like, usually, you know, you've, you've written a, a, you know, a 200-page uh, book, basically, and you get to print it and hold it to heft, and you get to walk in and hand it in in person, and they didn't do any of that stuff. I clicked a button for submit, right? And then you have this final examination. It's a viva where they, you get examined by two established scholars who determine whether you qualify for these things. And usually you do it in a room. And then they send you out of the room and they discuss your fate. And then they bring you back into the room. And of course, we did it by Zoom, uh, which is deeply disappointing. And so at the end of our time in St. Andrews, the beginning of 2021, we, you know, we, the Lord had been telling us that pastoral ministry was where we were supposed to go. And we were being obedient to that. 
and sensing his call back to ministry. Um, and we had a clear, what was a clear call to us to one church to go to, and we were um, about 48 hours, 24, 48 hours from the congregational vote, things went utterly pear-shaped. They went upside down, and they withdrew their call and withdrew their appeal to us and just sent us packing. And we thought, now what happens? And we were about 20 days from the exit time of our visas. We had to leave the country. And we went from having a place to go to having no place to go, uh, which was stressful, to say the least. So end of, uh, end of May, um, this is still high COVID, May, May 26th was the date our visas ended, and that was the day we left the country. No one was traveling. We were on one of those big jumbo liners with the three seats and the five, or the, the, whatever, three and the five and the three, and I think there were maybe 15 people on our entire plane, right, going over the ocean. And I mean, it was great because the kids got to lay out on our seats, but, you know, it was, it was surreal. It was that kind of high COVID, strange season of, of, it just felt apocalyptic, like we were fleeing the country, which technically we were. <laughs> and so we landed in May um, in Florida and didn't know what was supposed to happen. Didn't know where we were supposed to be, didn't know where we were supposed to go. And for the next five, uh, for the next five six months, we licked our wounds and wondered what God had in store for us. Now, in the meantime, um, we had been, we, we'd lived in Vancouver for 12 years. Um, we were known to the district of the North Shore. Uh, we were known to the district of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And so our names were in the hat for this job here. And so we were, cons- we were having conversations, trying to decide, trying to discern what God was doing, but deeply, deeply tired and deeply feeling the shock of where, what was God doing? And why is he doing this to us? And what did we do to deserve this kind of, like, you know, if this is how you treat your friends, God, come on. Like, it was, it was some, there was some discomfort for us in these moments. So we were able to discern the call to come here and believe that God has led us to this place. Uh, and we're pleased to be in this space. But I need to be upfront. And this is the thing, one of the reasons I'm narrating this story, I'm not complaining, I'm just narrating our lives, is that I want you to know that we arrived very tired. And we arrived very low, and we arrived very much spiritually exhausted, and it's been hard. And we arrived, and it took us six months to find a place to live, and the place we've moved into required renovations, so that was uh, just this kind of delayed arrival and the sense of what is, it, what is it that we're doing here? What is it that God wants us to do? And so I told our board when they hired me, I said, you need to know that I'm at about 60% capacity right now. Like, there are huge portions of me that just aren't even functioning at this time. And I need to be candid with you as well that that's been part of my story. So um, going to Scotland these past couple weeks, it was lovely. It was a good visit. And my own, my own prayer for that time, my kind of spirit about the time, was that I wanted to kind of, like, it felt like our end to that season was a really ragged tear. Like there'd been a rip instead of anything clean. And I was praying that maybe we could stitch up the edge of the season. Maybe tie off the narrative of this difficult time and kind of make sense in it. And in some ways, I feel that. And in some ways, I'm able to tell the story in some fresh ways because I feel like there's a little bit of closure on some of these seasons of our life. And with that closure, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was me sitting in pubs in Oxford, which was really nice. Uh, maybe it was the walk. Maybe it was seeing some old friends. I feel a little rejuvenated like I haven't for a time. Now, I don't, I'm, not, I'm the first person to tell myself, don't rely too much on this, Jeremy. Let's wait six months and see how you feel then, and I'm fine with that. But I also have a sense of burden that while I have a little bit of fire, I need to share it with you. 
I need to share that with you because you need to know where I'm coming from, what I'm doing, what I want to do. And so with that, let me shift a little bit and give you something I'm thinking about for our church, okay? So last week, I had no responsibilities. It was really nice. I just came to church, I sat, and I floated. If you, saw, if you were here, you saw me walking around the room, paying attention, trying to see what's God doing, what's happening in this space. And I sat in the back of the service, and I watched things. And I had some thoughts, and I wasn't, didn't have anything, I think, to do particularly with the service. But if you think about it, Christianity is really pretty weird. We do weird things. We sing, we come together and sing songs. Like, a, like who does that these days, right? And, and we spend time in silence, right? And then we pray and we talk, to, we talk to a God, right? And then we listen to sermons of like, you know, sometimes spurious quality. I'll put myself in that, right? They're, who knows what's going on? And then we, we give money and then we go and drink coffee and we do it again next week. It's kind of an odd thing that we do. And so I sat here and I watched, I watched you all, and this is not a judgment on you all, and I just had a kind of growing conviction about our time together, about how important our time together is. Because we may not realize it, but eternity is on the line. Something eternal has the potential to happen every time we gather as a people. And I just have this swelling sense of the utter importance of our gathered time. It is so important. And I have a conviction that every single time we get together, we have to move. It doesn't have to be a big move. We could move however small, however incrementally, we have an opportunity to move a little bit more towards Jesus. Not just these gatherings, but every small group gathering and every grief share gathering, right? And every youth meeting and every worship night and every staff meeting. Every single time the church meets in whatever form, whatever size, and whatever capacity is an opportunity for us to move forward. And I want you to feel that conviction as well. I don't want us to have any wasted moments together as a church. So I want to say a couple things to you and make a couple promises. The promise first is this. I will give you everything I have to help us move towards move that incremental journey towards Jesus. I will give you everything I have. I will use all my skills, all my degrees, which may or may not be worth it, all the wisdom maybe God has given me. Everything I have, I will use to serve you to grow in that capacity because I want us to move in that way. And I want us to have a sense. Now, I'm not saying where we're going globally as a church. I'm not saying this is the five-year plan of the church. I'm saying these are the things that can't wait. They can't wait at all. We have to move towards Jesus every week. Okay? So what do I want from you? I think that's fair. I'll make a promise to you. I'm not going to make you promise things to me, but here's what I want. I want a couple things. One, I want you to come hungry to church. Come hungry. Build a sense of desire for God and for the people of God and for the Spirit of God where you can meet and hear from Him each week. Your expectation, if you bring it, will result in your experience of God, a greater experience. I believe that. Expectation transforms environments like these. So I want you to come hungry. The second thing I want from you is I want you to come ready to respond. Not to me. I'm irrelevant. Nothing I say really matters. When you experience God, when you hear from him, be ready to respond to God. Come hungry to hear from God. Come ready to respond to God. Okay? Those are the things that I want from you. And I think these are the things that will prepare you for this journey of transformation. How's that sound? Okay. Let's shift right in to the word of God. Today's passage, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. 
I love this passage. Here we go. Let me read it for you now. The words will be on the screen. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that is Jesus, to dine with him. And he, Jesus, entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Now those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Wow, this is a story that may be familiar to you. You've probably heard some form of it before in maybe your Christian journey, maybe not. There's a striking set of circumstances. It's a, it's a strangely intimate scene, but also kind of uh, foreign and alienating. Like It's a very different kind of world than we are used to. Now, you should know the stories recorded in all four Gospels, but that's slightly different. There's a twist in each of them. So uh, Matthew, we won't read them now, but Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14 both tell pretty much the identical story. And in these cases, the woman anoints Jesus in preparation for his burial. If you think about it, Jesus has died. He, Jesus is crucified. He dies, and he's put into the tomb before they have a chance to do the embalming, <clears throat> before they have a chance to put spices on him. So this woman anoints him with spices before his burial. Right? It's a pre-burial anointing in anticipation of not anyway. You can go on in these things. We learn that it happens in a city called Bethany, where lots of things happen in the New Testament. And in Matthew and Mark, the house is the house of Simon the leper. Okay? We learn at Simon the leper's house. Now, the woman is given no name in both of these accounts. Okay? John, however, chapter 12 makes it a little different. Okay. John chapter 12 has another story. Also, it's preparation for his death. It also happens in Bethany, but this time the house belongs to Lazarus, who Jesus has raised from the dead in chapter 11, just before this. So now we're in Lazarus' house, and the woman who anoints Jesus' feet is Mary, sister of Martha. So now we get a name, but it's a different place, a different people who are doing these things. So in our reading today, in the Gospel of Luke, the woman is unnamed, She's identified as a known sinner. She's a known sinner, which very likely means she was a sex worker or, in the traditional language, a prostitute. This is most likely what she was doing. We appear to be, in this time, a city called Nain in this, and we're in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Okay? So what's going on here? Who is the woman in this story? 
Well, a little history. First of all, it's about the 600s. One of the church fathers thought that all these women were the same person. They actually thought that, that Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene and the woman who was the prostitute and the woman anointing Jesus' feet were all the same person. So if you grew up hearing that Mary Magdalene had been a prostitute, this is the origin of this thing. But the only thing the Bible says about Mary Magdalene was that she was a woman from whom Jesus had cast seven demons. That's all you know. And then she's a witness later on of these things. So uh, this is not, uh, it's probably not Mary Magdalene in the case here. And what's going on with our Bibles? So we have a couple options. Either Jesus was anointed on three different occasions by three different women, three times with extravagantly expensive perfume. It's like a thing people did for Jesus. Oh, you've got perfume, throw it on his feet. I, I don't know. It's, uh, that's one option we have here. I think it's unlikely. Uh, the other option is that the gospel authors are, are using stories in different ways at different times. Have you ever read like a psychology textbook and then you get to the end and say, hey, case studies have been built by composite. We pulled our data from five different places and we built a composite story that illustrates things really well. That may be what's going on here. This is a, it's a composite story being brought to us of the person. I'm not sure that it matters so much. What we're going to focus on the text is Luke's text today. And I think in light of that, it's actually spiritually important that this woman is unnamed and unknown. And I want to take a moment to talk about why I think that's important, that she's unknown. If you think about it, there are a significant number of anonymous characters in the New Testament. Think about all the people who ask Jesus questions. They don't have names, right? Think about the crowds who he feeds and performs miracles for. They don't have names. Many of the people he does heal and do things for, we don't know their names. Did you know that Jesus sends out 70 other disciples on a mission? Do you know their names? These are close associates of Jesus. It's interesting how many anonymous people there are. And what I want you to hear is that sometimes anonymity provides the space where we can enter the biblical story. Sometimes anonymous people make the space where we get to enter into the biblical story. Have you been to one of those fairs or festivals where they have the cardboard cutouts, I don't know, like a farmer or a spaceman, right? And they cut out the face, and you can go put your face in and take a photo, and look, I'm a spaceman, right? Lawrence has done it. And... Um, You've done that, and maybe that's kind of what anonymity is like in the Bible here, is that it's a, it's a cutout, and you get to put your face in the story and see, what does this look like if this is me? How does it feel like if I'm a part of this story in this way? And there are parts of the Bible where we are asked to find ourselves. Not many of us are supposed to be like Peter. We may be more like the, the demon-possessed who are being healed, or like the woman caught in the act of adultery, or you could name the stories as you see. And I think something about her story is meant to be our story. You know, it's also fair is that there's probably very few of us on the global scale who are meant to have, like, headline faith, right? Do you know how when you watch a movie, you get to the end, they show the credits, and everybody who got billing gets their name in the credits. But sometimes there's people who don't get billing. They perform cameo appearances. Some of us are slated for cameo appearances in salvation history. Your name's not going to be known. It's not going to matter, but you play a part. And you're part of the story. And I think that's good for us as well to remember that this is part of our story as well. So does the fact that we don't know her name make her less important? Of course not. Of course not. She's a crucial figure. But as we look at characters in the New Testament, we get to look at one who doesn't have a name today. And I think that's important for all of us because our names aren't going to be found in the New Testament either. But we have a part in this story. So I want to go through our passage together again. I'm actually going to go verse by verse through the passage. At the beginning, I'm going to highlight the strange and kind of strange and foreign situation to us. 
Then I want to focus on Jesus' teaching in response to the Pharisee. And then let's talk about some lessons for us quickly at the end. So let's go through this again. Verse uh, 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him, and Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, the first thing to know is that people used to recline to eat. I've got a picture here, it'll show up in a second, of a Roman table. This is, this is the Roman world. There's a special name for this, but you know, instead of sitting like we sit and kind of hunkering over, people would lay sideways. They'd always recline to eat. They thought it was better for the digestion that things would go down. So when you read about John leaning against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, this is what he's, le- he's laying, he's just reclining next to him. So you can kind of, if he wants to have a quiet conversation, you kind of lean back and whisper something. And so you're a lot closer to the people around you in these things. And so you always recline to eat. Now, it looks like, I mean, this, uh, you know, dinner parties in the Roman world were often salacious events. That's not what we're going to focus on. But this looks like Simon's house. There's a kind of open portico. People have access to it. They can, she just walks in. Uh, so it's not like it's a kind of closed, secretive space. There's something a bit more exposed and open about these things. Verse 37. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. So here's our unnamed character. Here's our unnamed woman. What we do know is that she has a reputation. Now, there aren't many opportunities in the ancient world for people like her to develop reputations, which is why this narrows down to prostitution as her likely trade. This is what she's in all likelihood known for. Uh, The second half of this verse, uh, 74, excuse me, 37b, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. When she heard, she heard about Jesus. Now, just in the chapter before this, Jesus has raised a widow's son from the dead, Right? And the whole crowd is going, wow, this guy's a prophet. I mean, he's, he's done all sorts of things. He's, made, he's, he's, he's known. He's seen. He's done amazing things. And she's heard about this guy, and she wants to hear him. She wants to go see him. And something in her drives her. I've got to go. I don't know what the drive is. It's hope. It's just a desperate need. She just knows that she has to go and see Jesus. So why bring a jar of perfume? I think it's maybe an odd choice. Uh, does she think maybe she's going to his house? She said, oh, I've got to bring something. I've got to bring a gift. And so she, like, what, ferrets around her to kitchen? She finds some half-eaten cookies. No, that's no good. Right? She finds a piece of, like, string she brought together, maybe some flowers on the wall. And then she says to herself, no, I have to bring something valuable. What do I have that's valuable? And maybe she grabs the most valuable thing in her house. We'll talk about the value of the perfume right now. Because this expensive perfume was a likely further indication of um, what it was that she did for her work. A normal, ordinary uh, woman in the ancient world would not have um, the, the, the resources to purchase uh, what the other Gospels say is a 300 denarii valued uh, bottle of perfume. Now, a denarii, here's a Roman coin, the Caesar Augustus is the name. One denarius is a silver coin, it equals one day's wages. So you work for a day, you receive your coin as a day's wages at the end of it, okay? Some of you who are good at math, do the math, okay? 300 of these is 82% of a year's wages. What's 82% of a daily wage for a workman? Okay. And you think of the extravagant amount of money that is at play here. Really extravagant here that's going on. And the fact that she has this thing uh, indicates something about her status as well. Verse 38. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, if you don't have the reclining image in mind, this is not going to make a lot of sense, right? But Jesus is reclining, probably on the floor at the table, and she <laughs> walks up behind him and is just standing at his feet, um, which is a bit awkward. 
uh, and a bit strange, but, but you, have to, you have to picture that, or this is not going to make a lot of sense. She's not under the table. She's standing. The table's on the ground. They're behind it. Okay? Here's Jesus. He's laying on these cushions. The woman comes up and stands behind him. Is she alone? Are there other people in the room? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us, right? Do they notice her coming in? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. She's standing there, and she just starts weeping. The tears just start to pour down her face. Why is she weeping? We can speculate. Maybe she feels the shame of her profession. She feels the shame of her life history and of her choices. She probably feels the unworthiness to recline at a table with these holy men, the prophet's presence. She probably feels like her presence may uh, sour or ruin the holiness of their meeting. I'm actually ruining this event that's going on. Some kind of overwhelming uh, remorse at her life. And so tears begin to pour down her face. Are they noisy tears? Are they snotty tears? I'm not a nice crier. I don't know about you. I ugly cry, right? And maybe some of you you have a nice kind of like, you know, really theatrical, oh, I wept. You know, one tear comes down, right? I, I just think she's an absolute wreck at this point. And certainly if she has enough tears to wash someone's feet with them, right? There is something going on. It's just pouring out of her face. The tears are full bore. I mean, if there's a faucet on the back of her head, it's open all the way, right? And she's going to be dehydrated later because of how much tears she's poured out of her face. And here's what I think has happened. I think she's standing at Jesus's feet. I don't know if you can picture this. She's standing at Jesus's feet, and she's just helpless, doesn't know what to do. And the tears fall off her face, and some of them land on his feet. And here's what I think happens. Do you know how when you've gone to the beach, you've had a really dusty day, and you get a spray of water, the water makes both part of you clean and makes you realize how dirty you are? And I think the water of her tears hit the dirty feet of Jesus, and she said, oh, no, his feet are dirty. And maybe she thought, oh, no, I made them dirty. I've got to fix it, right? Or maybe she thought, how do I, what's going to go on? And so before she knows it, my guess is she's on on her knees behind him, and she's probably wiping the tears off her face and cleaning his feet, and she's taking her hair, probably the pride and glory of her work, what sits, gives her status and beauty as a woman of the night in the city, and she's using that to dry his feet off, and now she's kissing his feet. I mean, this is probably not the most hygienic moment in either of their lives. But it's striking and strange and alarming. Okay? She takes the perfume. I've got a picture of an alabaster jar. This is a 2,500-year-old alabaster jar. Uh, it's not that, it's, it looks big from here, but it's probably not that big uh, in terms of its size. She uncocks it and pours the perfume on the feet of Jesus, right? S- scandalous waste, right? And now she fills the entire dinner room with the smell of this perfume. It probably overpowers the smell of the meal in some ways. Here's an aside. Do you think any of the men at that table recognized the smell of the perfume? So, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So let's be fair to Simon the Pharisee for a moment. This is a striking, bizarre, evocative, and even weirdly sexual scene to be happening at a public dinner party. This is very weird. Earlier, after Jesus had raised the widow's son at Nain, the crowd said, this is a prophet. 
because he raises a widow's son just like Elijah raises a widow's son, a prophet of God. And so the question of Jesus being a prophet is in the air. And he asks the question, if he were a prophet, if you really were a prophet, wouldn't you know what kind of person this is? In other words, Simon passes a judgment. I know about her, and I'm not even a prophet, right? How can this guy not do something similar? And these are Simon's inner thoughts. It says that Simon says to himself, mumbling kind of quietly for himself. Now, uh, do I believe that Jesus has the capacity to read minds? Probably other places it says he knew it was in people's thought, hearts. But on this occasion, I bet all he has to do is read faces, right? I bet Simon made a stink face. And Jesus knew what was in his heart. Just like sometimes you look at your kids and you see their faces, you know what's in their heart, right? Um, Jesus knew what was in the heart of Simon. In verse 40, and Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replied, say it, teacher. And now we're in rabbinic discourse, right? I'm a teacher, let me teach you. Let's have this discourse. And we're ready. He's, he's, on, he's ready for this kind of conversation. Or at least he thinks he's ready for this conversation. Verse 41, Jesus says, a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Again, a denarii is a day's wages. 500 is a lot. It's like a year and a half of salary. 50, still a lot, but not as much. Okay? So we've got some monies here. Verse 42, when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Now, I've, I looked through the Greek text this week. The word graciously forgave is a bit of an embellishment. It's just one word. He forgave pardoned, wiped away, waved his hand at. He said, no big deal, which is pretty scandalous in itself because if you know any money lenders, they don't just give money away, right? They want back because that's their business, to get back what they've given so they can loan it out and get more. So just forgiving it is its own kind of scandal that he would do this kind of thing, all right? So Jesus, excuse, I'm sorry, Jesus asked then a strange question, which will love him more? Which will love him more? And I want to talk about that question again after we read Simon's answer. Verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Okay, so what's going on? The one who received more forgiveness is the right answer, according to Jesus' parable. Now, on the one hand, this is obviously true, and it's the answer that Jesus is looking for. He wanted Simon to get to this answer. He wasn't trying to trick him uh, beyond uh, certain, <laughs> well, maybe some kind of trick, but not, not a trick in that sense, right? And so the greater awareness you have of being forgiven, the greater gratitude you should have. I think that's fair. I think it's a fair way for us to go. But on the other hand, sometimes the person who can't afford a $50 debt is in much worse circumstances than the person who can't afford a $500 debt. In fact, the guy who has the $500 debt probably has 50, right? Um, and so it maybe isn't so much about the amount as it is about recognizing that you're forgiven. And I think this is part of where Jesus maybe wants us to go. So Jesus compliments Simon as a judge. He says, you have judged correctly. And this phrase stood out to me as well because he judged the woman when she came in, didn't he? And he also judged her correctly. Don't you know what kind of woman this is? And in fact, Jesus does know what kind of woman this is. He didn't make the wrong judgment. She is a sinner. And Jesus knows that she is a sinner. What this exposes is that Simon, who is a kind of judge for Israel, is really good at his job. He's good at knowing the law, good at knowing God's word, but he doesn't understand God's mercy. He knows the word, but he doesn't know the mercy of God behind the word. So, verse 44, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Now, in a hospitality-based culture, Jesus has just highlighted some serious breaches of hospitality on Simon's part. Ancient world, you walk around outside, your feet are bare, you've got sandals, there's lots of dirt and muck and other nasty things, and your feet get all filthy, and when you come into someone's house, one of the courtesies is to wash their feet. You have a servant who does this full-time, foot washer, right, doing this kind of stuff. So why doesn't he do this? Is it a kind of uh, shady disrespect for his guest? Is Simon throwing shade at Jesus? Are there just too many disciples, right? The hangers-on are too many, and he can't, he can't afford to make this work. Uh, my guess is that the food on the table was impeccably kosher. Like, every single piece of food was, was top, tip-top kosher food, but there was something deeply lacking in the warmth of loving people in Simon's heart. So rather than highlight the scandalousness of the woman's behavior, Jesus highlights the inadequacy of Simon's basic humanity. He turns things upside down. In other words, Simon, you also have a debt here. You violated other laws, Simon. Verse 47, for this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Ouch, Simon. Ouch. You don't love very much, do you, Simon? Something's missing, isn't there, Simon? For what reason? What's the reason she's forgiven? Because of this radical act of love and desperation. A woman in a desperate situation, turning herself to Jesus, throwing herself on the mercy of Jesus, that's the reason she's forgiven, because she's thrown herself at the mercy of Jesus. That's the reason. It says her sins are forgiven, but there's some better translation. The word order doesn't always matter um, in the Greek Bible, but here it does, because it says these words. It says, they are forgiven, her sins, the many. Really brings you, hey, they're forgiven. What's forgiven? Her sins, all of them. They've been wiped clean, which is astonishing that Jesus says these things. Now, question. Does Simon really have that little that needs forgiving? I mean, maybe, maybe he's not been a raging drunk, and maybe he's not robbed his fellow man. But you know what? He does have a streak of judgmentalism. Uh, as a Pharisee, he's been represented Israel, and God's he's represented God to the people of Israel, but he's not represented God's mercy and his love. And I think that's kind of a form of taking the Lord's name in vain. I speak for Yahweh, but only half of Yahweh. Yahweh's law, but not Yahweh's forgiveness. So the woman here may be violating the sixth commandment, thou should not commit adultery, but I think Simon's violated the third commandment, and he's taken the name of the Lord our God in vain. He's got debts he's not even aware of. Simon also needs to be forgiven much, but he just doesn't seem to be aware of it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, there's a debate about Pharisees who wanted to justify themselves, and Jesus says, he said, they say, do you think we're blind? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but since you say we see, your sin remains. Because you claim to be in, now you're in trouble. But if you were really blind, it'd be all right. Verse 48, then he said to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. Here's the scandal of Jesus. He forgives people's sins. Think about it. Uh, if you've not done anything to me, how can I forgive you, right? If you've not wronged me or violated me or harmed me, how can I forgive you for that thing? Only the person who's been wronged can offer forgiveness, right? Does it make sense, Right? If, uh, let's pick one, if, if Nita kicks Sarah in the knee, right, please don't. Does it make sense for me to say, Nita, I forgive you? How's that sensible? 
But here's Jesus offering forgiveness. Who, alone, who on earth has authority to forgive sins except God? And you do the maths, and if he does forgive sins and it's real, then, uh-oh, he is God, because only God has the authority to do these things. Verse 49, those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. They're right to ask the question. They're right to ask the question, who on earth has authority to forgive sins? What they don't understand and they're not ready to receive is the authority of Jesus to do just that. They're not aware of it. And so in mercy, Jesus says to the woman, I think he says, get out of here before the arguing Pharisees make you doubt the good I've done for you. I think that's why he dismisses her. And maybe I want to pause and say, some of you have received Jesus' forgiveness, and then other people have spoken doubts to you about that forgiveness. Are you sure? Did you do it enough? He said the right prayer. Did you say it the right number of times? But you're still a bad person, but these other things are going on. And I think Jesus has a word for you. Go and get out while these other people argue it. Just listen to my voice. Don't listen to their voices, right? Only listen to Jesus. Once Jesus has forgiven you, his is the only voice that matters. That's it. No other voice matters. All right. Some lessons for us, and we'll go through these pretty quickly. This is an incredible story of Jesus and this unnamed woman, and I'm going to highlight three things. Lesson one, the most important action is to throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus. That is the most important thing that we have to do. He's a forgiving God, a knowing God, a loving God, and a merciful God. He knows everything you've done. He sees every wart, every wrinkle, every character flaw, he knows every single thing about you, and he wants to forgive. You have to throw yourself at his mercy. That's what's key. He wants you. And maybe some of you have learned some Pharisee faith, right? Like, I've got to obey, or else. I've got to get it right, or else. I've got some rule following. God's the judge, and he's going to punish me for not doing the things I'm supposed to be doing, and you're fearful of God, and I want to invite you to throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus again. God is a judge, but he's also merciful, and he reveals his mercy in the person of Jesus. So throw yourself at Jesus' mercy. Lesson number two, God is scandalously generous. Scandalously generous. He forgives everything. Everything. Whatever you've done, whatever's happened in your life, whatever guilt you bear, whatever shame you hide in these closets of your life, Whatever things you don't want to let out, he will and does forgive these things. It's scandalous. As far as I can see, there's only one condition. Will you throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus? That's it. Throw yourself at his mercy. Now, does God's forgiveness mean there aren't consequences? Of course not. There are physical consequences to the things we've done. Sometimes there are spiritual consequences. There are relationships that will never be repaired in this life because of some of the things we've done. But one of the things we will know if we've thrown ourselves at the mercy of Jesus, we will know with certainty, we will know, we will know perfectly that when we stand at the judgment seat of God, we will receive mercy because of what he's done for us. And that's very good news for sinners like us, isn't it? but we have to throw ourselves at his mercy again and again and again. Lesson three is this. God's generosity inverts our economics. Inverts our economics. Here's this perfume. Judas says it could be sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. Also says he doesn't really mean it. How can we, be just, how can we justify being so wasteful 
with our resources. Well, God is wasteful. Have you thought about how wasteful he is with beauty? Every year, the cherry blossoms grow up on our trees, and then they all just fall to the ground and spill and flow around the ground. It's just trash of beauty. There's so much of it, it lies on our streets. It's unbelievable. Every sunset, every sunrise is just wasteful beauty. He's utterly wasteful, right? And he just gives and gives and gives, and he is deeply wasteful with his forgiveness. God forgives people you and I would give up on, right? In fact, he does forgive people that you and I have given up on. We'd send to the woodshed, kick them out, be done with them, and God says, I've got room. You can't exhaust his forgiveness. And it's scandalous sometimes just how wasteful it is. When the demoniac at the tomb with the thousand demons in him, remember, they have a kind of debate, and Jesus, he wants to go into the herd of pigs, and Jesus says, fine, go into the pigs, and the thousand demons go into the pigs, and they rush into the, the water. One of the things this tells me is that Jesus values one human life more than the socioeconomics of an entire region. You and I, you know what we do with the demoniac? We'd sign him up for maid. He's not worth it. His life isn't worth it. Let's kill him and take the cost away. That money can be used for other purposes and given to the poor, right? But God doesn't give up on people. He doesn't. And he wastes where we're cheap. It's astonishing. And so this woman walks away new and free. The demoniac walks away new and free. And you and I have a chance to walk away new and free. So that's your challenge today. If you're an old hat of the faith, when was the last time you threw yourself at the mercy of Jesus? You got a chance today. Throw yourself again. Never gets old, right? If you've never thrown yourself at the mercy of Jesus and you're aware of it and you have a burden in your heart at this moment, this is your chance to throw yourself at his mercy. You may regret many things, but you will never regret the mercy of Jesus because it's wonderful and good and powerful. I'm going to invite our musicians to come and take their place. I'm going to invite our communion servers, and let's talk about this meal for a moment here today. On the night when our Lord was... Um, crucified, uh, I'm sorry, when he was betrayed, uh, he had the last supper with his disciples. And they sat together, and he took bread, and he took wine, and he said, this bread is now my body of the new covenant, which is given for you, and this cup is now my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you, and when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we declare what Christ has done until he returns to us. It's amazing. Um, one of the ways you can seek the mercy of Jesus is by pursuing him where he is. And he's present in our community and he's present in this holy meal that we get to have together. And so um, I invite us to come forward to take and receive of the body and blood of Jesus and be transformed by his mercy. Some instructions. I'm going to have the servers. Yeah, the servers come. Come, servers. Okay. Um, and get yourselves set up. Uh, what we're going to do is the server is going to take a piece of the bread, tear it, put it in your hand, uh, and then you'll take the piece, and they'll say the body of Christ, which is given for you, uh, and then you'll take the piece, and you dip it in the cup, and the server of the cup will say, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you, um, and then you can take and eat it right there on the spot, okay? Um, when uh, We have some gluten-free options with a separate uh, cup on this side, so if that's you, you need to just come down the center aisle, and we'll, we'll help you out at that point. 
Okay? And then one last thing is that our, um, I just want to highlight this, our tablecloths, um, one of the things we've done is they tie us to our missionaries, and we have a new one from Paul and Gina that's come from Kenya. And so this reminds us that in this meal, we are bound together not only as a church together, but as a church with our mission in the world. Um, and it's a joy to love and pray for those as well. So let me pray for this, and then we'll spend some time worshiping and coming for this meal. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your power. I thank you for the wastefulness of your forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be as generous as you are, as loving as you are, as forgiving as you are. This meal right now, touch us with your presence and your power. These things I ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.